tonight is uh, an opportunity for us to have an important conversation. Uh, started last Wednesday night. Um, it will continue uh, this coming Sunday, and hopefully this is the beginning of continuing to talk uh, about uh, who we are and what our calling is as followers of Jesus on all kinds of different issues. Conversation of race has been one that has been uh, certainly alive in this country and in our world for a long time. It has um, been something, however, that in the last year since Ferguson, Missouri, has been something that has been more on the radar screen uh, for many people. And that has continued uh, through what's happening even in the last day or two at the University of Missouri. Um, and I think for many of us, we're not certain how to talk about it, and we're not certain how to respond or what we're supposed to do. And so the church has in many ways relate, remained largely quiet in this, which doesn't mean that Christians don't have positions. It just means that we're not forming them in discussion with each other and in community with each other. And we don't want to do that. We don't want there to be kind of a vacuum of uh, conversation and discernment on any issue together. Uh, we believe that Jesus is Lord, and we don't therefore need to be um, living in fear of, of, of any kind of conversation. The most, the most frequent command in the Bible is do not be afraid. But I believe that it's fear in this conversation of race in our country that keeps many of us quiet, not wanting to say the wrong thing, not wanting to do the wrong thing. Now, you do notice I do have notes to try to be deliberate in what we're saying tonight. But we need to be able to have this conversation as followers of Jesus. We particularly have, I believe, been called to have that here at Covenant based on uh, not just what's happening in our country and not just uh, what we've seen uh, happening in different places, but it was also a direct outgrowth of Mayor Adler's visit with us last spring. Some of you know we had Mayor Steve Adler who was here. We wanted to have a conversation with him uh, that really began in January when Daryl Guder was here who talked about that the call of this church was to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin. And so if we said, well, if we're called to be a love letter from God to the city of Austin, then how is it that we are in conversation with the city? And so we said, well, what if, and J.J. Baskin really led the charge on this. He said, well, what if we invited the mayor and actually asked the city what it might want rather than as Christians, us forming a committee and staying behind doors and deciding what we'll do, what if we asked? What would it mean to serve? What would it mean to, um, to get involved and to love this city well? And the, one of the main things that the mayor raised, uh, if you were here, was he talked about a recent study that we've mentioned here that Austin, Texas has been named the most economically segregated city in the United States. Largest disparity between those few who have and the many who do not. And he said, that's something we're going to need to figure out and talk about. Well, if you do any research on that, what you're going to realize is that economic segregation is largely can be drawn on a map. It can largely be drawn on a map between East Austin and West Austin, and the history of that is a history that is one that is based on race and on racism. It didn't just happen that way. And so what we got to was a point of saying that if this is something the mayor is raising for us and that we want to do, then we need to figure out and, and look at these issues so that we can be faithful in our call to love this city well. 
and to seek justice and reconciliation as followers of Jesus. I'm going to bring up here a passage of scripture. I, I one time in a sermon told a story about how Beth and I, my wife and I, we read books differently. That uh, Beth reads the last couple of chapters of a book uh, at times before she starts it to decide if she likes the way it ends and if she wants to read it, which to me completely defeats the purpose of reading a book in the first place. This, is, this has actually been a major point of friction in our marriage over the years as to how it is that we read books. Um, and some of you agree with me and some of you are wrong and agree with Beth. When it comes to the scriptures, she's not here tonight, so I can just go crazy talking about this kind of stuff. When it comes to the scriptures, it actually is really, really uh, important that we read the scriptures with an eye like Beth does, on always seeking and knowing that the end of the story is secure. The end of the story of the coming of the kingdom of God is secure, and it gives us a vision for the kind of world we're supposed to be working for today. What the vision of the kingdom of God is, is not just mysterious. There are certain things that we can say God's vision for our world is. Heaven, the, the, the age to come, the kingdom, is not uh, us floating on clouds. It's not us just existing with harps in our hands and, uh, or playing golf for eternity. It's actually very clear what the kingdom of God is. It says that the kingdom of God is a city. It's the new Jerusalem that comes. And that new Jerusalem and that eternity will be defined is that in the center of that city will be God himself. And that as we look into the eyes of our creator, we will lose all track of time and space because we will find a wholeness that we've never known before. In chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, which actually I have a flicker here. Sorry, Nikki. This is what it says. No, no, you're, okay. This is what it says. John's, hold on. We, we, so there you go. Good night. It's been a good, uh, good program. Glad we could be here together. Hold on just a second. Let me see. All right. Well, because I don't have a paper Bible here, let me summarize what Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says. It said, oh, there we go. All right. It says this. It says, after this I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. It is very clear that God's design for humanity is a place where every tribe and every tongue will be gathered together as one equal people. That is God's vision for the world. That is God's vision for our city today. And therefore, it's important we talk about how we get there and how we build it. To have that conversation, uh, this week we invited someone who Many of you know well, but not everyone does. Reverend James Lee. James is somebody that when I received this call, I had all kinds of people who said, whatever you do when you get to Austin, connect with James Lee. He is somebody that you need to know. He is somebody that you should be friends with. And one of the first things I did was contact James and ask if I could sit down. James is a church planter, which 
resonates with me and my heart deeply, and, um, and, and I'm grateful to have gotten to know him. James, for those of you who have not met him before, was an associate pastor here at Covenant from 2003 to 2009, and while he was here, he was um, commissioned to start New Covenant Fellowship, a intentionally racially diverse congregation that meets uh, on the east side of Austin. It was chartered in 2009, and uh, I hope that you've looked on uh, our website or on some of the links that have been sent out because uh, a magazine just did a really wonderful article on James and New Covenant Fellowship talking about uh, their call and their working for justice and racial diversity in their congregation. Um, and so we wanted James to come and for us to be able to have a dialogue tonight around some of these issues as someone who knows this church well and whom we know, but whom we can learn from. And so I'd invite you to welcome uh, back to Covenant, James Lee. This is comfy up here, isn't it? Oh, man, hey, I need these kind of chairs. So this conversation is one that is taking place, sometimes in healthy ways, but many times in ways that are difficult. So when we, but when we first talked about this idea this summer yes. and said, you know, would this be a conversation you'd be willing to come have with us? Why did you say yes? Why was it something you wanted to come do? Why is it important us for, to have this talk tonight? I said yes, because I have been working with some of the pastors with uh, Christ Together, Greater Austin, as we were working to try to address race in the city of Austin. And folks were looking for a safe place to have a conversation as the whole city of Austin. <clears throat> and I was looking for a safe place to have a conversation. And lo and behold, when we had the conversation, I'm, I was like, Lord, you can't be serious. We're thinking about it out here, and Covenant is thinking about it right here, and Covenant would have been the first place that I would have called to say, can we? And to do that and then see where you guys were already going, for me, that spirit, and it was just an automatic yes. Well, we're glad that you're here. To set the context for uh, some of this conversation tonight, as we're talking about Austin, it's important for us, I think, for us to know, and, and James and I have looked at this, uh, a little bit of the history of this city, um, of where we've, what's gotten us uh, to where we are today. Austin's a city we love. It's a city that I've grown to love. It's a city my family and I have grown to love. And every city in this country has... Uh, different kinds of histories, parts of it that we're proud of and parts of it that we're not. Uh, my grandfather in the city of Atlanta was highly involved in the Chamber of Commerce in the early 1960s during the Civil Rights Movement in the city of Atlanta to try to not be like Birmingham uh, in 1963 came up with a slogan that they used that we used to tease my grandfather about and it said that the city of Atlanta was the city too busy to hate. That was the official slogan that they used. 
And we used to laugh about that going, it's not that we don't hate you. We just can't be bothered to find the time to hate you because we're too busy doing everything else. So every city has parts of its story that you can be proud of, and every city has parts of its story that we need to look critically at, not because we're against it, but because we care about it and love it and want this vision. Um, I want to thank Anna Drake from the beginning. Anna is a member here at Covenant, just joined. She's a um, uh, young PhD student at University of Texas. She's doing uh, her dissertation on a subject that's somewhat related to this, specifically focused on education. But she helped us with some research on some of the city's history. And there's some slides that I want to bring up here that I'm going to see if I can control. Are you? Okay. Yeah, I'd just let them. I'm going to let you, yeah, I'm just going to put that down. Maureen's, in, Maureen's running it, which means we're in, good hand, which we're in better hands than if I tried to do it. So some of the parts of the city of Austin, 1928. The city plan for this city moved all segregated facilities, such as schools and public housing, to the east side, which was officially called the Negro District. By the 1930s, almost every African-American and Latino in Austin lived on the east side. This was the city ordinance of 1928 that established this Negro district. Next slide. In 1934, the Housing and Loan Corporation redlined areas. Now, redlining is something that John Wasson spoke about last week, happened in many different cities. Redlined areas outside of East Austin, which prohibited people of color from accessing federal housing loans. And any of you that have applied for a loan before knows that that basically means you can't get one anymore. So anything outside of this Negro district was redlined for anyone of color not to be able to receive um, access federal housing <coughs> loans. And this effectively prevented ethnic minorities from purchasing property outside of the Negro district. Okay? Next slide. 1956. All of these systems have been in place now for over 20 years, almost 30 years now. And construction of I-35 created uh, what one document called a concrete division between East and West Austin. Redlining at this time actually increased on the west side of Austin. As Austin was growing and expanding northward and westward, redlining actually increased throughout the city um, to keep folks of color on the east side. You now, at this point, have multiple generations that are forced to live in East Austin, which has the worst public housing, the worst pub public services, and the worst public schools in the city. You have multiple generations now living and being born into this system. Next slide. 1967, that says. 1967. The Austin Human Rights Commission submitted the Austin Fair Housing Ordinance in the City Council, proposing to eliminate discrimination in housing. But the Austin Board of Realtors sought a vote to defeat the ordinance and they secured over 27,000 signatures from white residents of Austin. The ordinance, rather than just going to the city council, was then brought to a public vote and defeated. Therefore, housing discrimination remained legal and binding throughout the city. That's in 1967, that's three years after the Civil Rights Act has been passed, federally. Redlining is still the law here. Actually, and, and I, some further research, it wasn't until the 1970s that this was overturned, and actually the Fair Housing Commission didn't have anything passed in the city until 1992, officially. 
I've talked to one person who says that there are still multiple deeds in the neighborhoods right around Covenant that on the official deed, it still prohibits the property being sold to anyone other than to any non-white. That's still today that this changed. Now, you can get an official deed changed, but that takes work, and so... Sure, but... Right. So what you have is generations of minorities that have been raised in cycles of poverty in East Austin. Now that the housing ordinance has been removed, the playing field is hardly level for younger generations in Austin today. You can't have that many decades and generations in the city living in different circumstances and then change the rules and go, okay, now it's a level playing field. It's, it's not a level playing field. It's not a level playing field at that point. So, what does that mean? Next slide. Okay, this is getting harder to read. Austin is the most economically segregated city in the nation. As we said, that this is largely still found in disparity between East Austin and West Austin. Austin, and listen to this, Austin is the only major city in the United States with a declining African-American population. It was, seven, I believe it was 17.6% in 1940 compared to 8.5% today. It's the only major metropolitan area in the country with a declining African-American population. Gentrification of the east side has contributed to this. African-Americans are leaving Austin, Texas more rapidly than any other major city in the United States. So that's where we are today. And as one person uh, said, there's been a ton of progress. <laughs> And there absolutely has been a ton of progress in this country in the last 50 years. My children were in a conversation with my dad recently, uh, who my dad went to all segregated schools, maybe like some of you. And my children now go to a school that is 76% uh, children of color there. They can't imagine a day when there was this kind of segregation. But you can't, you can't unwrite this history. And this history has implications that I think in many ways are directly tied to the statistics we're seeing today. So James, what I'd ask you is, is, is that, as John talked about last week, given these statistics and given what we're seeing, racism is different. A lot of us think about racism as, if you went around this room, mo probably most everyone here would go, well, I'm not a racist. But that racism is actually in many ways systemic and it's institutional. And so one of the things that, that I'd love for you to reflect on a little bit with us is how you have experienced that how you've experienced racism and, and the forms that it's taken. Um, one of the most shocking thing that happened to me is we, when I first accepted the call here, Jim Singleton had all of the associate pastors um, over to their home. And on my way home uh, to my mother-in-law's to pick up our children afterwards, I have received a ticket <clears throat> on Coning Lane, okay, uh, and uh, Caning, Coning, Caning. Um, I received a ticket, and it was just like, uh, I knew I wasn't speeding, um, and it just was embarrassing because my wife was here, I'm here, we've just left, and it was like, not here, not now. Uh, in 2003, that would have been the experience. Because my father is a police officer, what he did tell me is, if you're ever, if the lights go on, 
unofficially you are under arrest. Grab your insurance, grab your driver's license, and put your hands, either roll down the window, put your hands there, or have your things right here on the side. That way, the officer doesn't have to fear for his or her life, and you can at least have an opportunity to walk through it. I didn't want to walk through that in the first place because I hadn't done anything wrong. Um, but that was an experience that, that I had. Um, subtle ways, when I, when I have to provide pastoral care to um, an elderly woman who um, is about to lose her house um, because she can no longer pay the taxes on the house that has been paid off for forever. And the tax burden is so great, it's more than the income she has. And her children have moved out of Austin and no one wants the house and she's in a bind. And to have to care for her that in that way, as she's losing everything, in a time when we're progressing and the city is becoming more beautiful and we're bringing more businesses here, but it's not taking the tax burden off some of the people, it's increasing that as the growth happens. So that can be a way in, in which it's seen. Um, in a different way, I will tell you, Covenant calling me here was huge. Um, it wasn't happening uh, in 2003 and has rarely happened since then. Um, so I experienced racism in a different way from the African and American Presbyterian churches because I accepted the call here. I was called a sellout. Um, I was told, you are one of our great resources why wouldn't you come to our church rather than go to that church? So I experienced racism in that way. And so it's going to be prevalent in different way. Why? Because they were fearful of losing a, resources, a resource and fearful of whether or not their church would continue to exist. <clears throat> so... You know, when, when we look at the forms of racism today, when you see these slides, I'm trying to draw uh, yeah, the, no, yeah, the margins well, yeah. that were there. So we, when you look at this and you see us being the only, that's a good sign. I'm calling Austin and us now. It was, that was just a little subtle That old George that man calling us. us. That's right. It's an us. <laughs> when, when we talk about that uh, in our city. Right, in our city. Tell me, tell me your experience of the correlation between the history of this city, which Dallas, Atlanta, other cities have, as I said, similar things in history, but how is where we've been led to where we are today as, for instance, uh, the only major metropolitan area with a declining African-American population? What's, what's unique about Austin that's creating those kind of dynamics as well, you see it? When you do have those, have, have, a systemic way in which you're moving people out, um, it does impact uh, whether or not they're going to be exposed to resources. 
Um, it makes a difference on whether or not you're for health, whether you're going to do that, whether you're going to have transportation, whether or not you'll have your jobs, definitely education, even having um, the special school at LBJ for great students and at Keeling, um, it's still a matter of going in and coming right back out and not having the influence and the impact there in, in the city. Now, <clears throat> there are a number of businesses or individuals who are now on the east side who now that progress has taken place are now shutting down or being told you need to clean up, you need to do this, and changes are taking place and they're losing their businesses for new businesses that are coming in. Um, what is also a part of the challenge, and, and JJ, uh, rest his soul, is, uh, was a part of things that would make my mind just go crazy um, because of education. Um, it, we were looking at the education divide because education is always going to be tied to poverty. Um, what has happened, and I was blown away when I came, um, started becoming more active in the Presbyterian Church here because on the East Coast, wherever there was a Presbyterian Church, the education level for the folks in the community around that, that church increased because there was we, a mother, we do that well. there was a Mother's Day out. Right. There was a, an opportunity where you had retired teachers who were teaching, so your K through two, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of location, would, would increase because of the Presbyterian Church. And lo and behold, we quit doing Christian education as a whole, and that impacted our evangelism, that impacted our, um, us in a big way so that the influence we used to have, we didn't have any longer. So I had a conversation with a person who was at a charter school or a private school, and we were having this conversation about the, um, the academic or education divide, and he said, James, the same amount of money is present, but when you have administration, spending the money, it doesn't go to the students or the schools. And so, well, why do you have to have the administrations? Well, because there has to be someone to take care of this problem. And instead of it being the day when we would work together so you didn't have to pay administrators to do that, then, um, then that money could have been reallocated and the education um, would have increased or improved as a result. Right now, we have a team that so recognizes the folks who cannot read um, in our schools that we're having more mentors who are going now to Maynard because you went from East Austin to Dell Valley to Bastrop to Maynard and some to Pflugerville. And so some of our issues are now being moved out this way and you're gonna start seeing a lot of historical African-American churches 
start to sell their property and chase, excuse me, um, move, being led by the spirit to move <coughs> in new locations. But not in Austin. But not in Austin. So when we see events that are taking place in Ferguson, when we see events that are taking place um, at the University of Missouri, for instance now, we've also seen even videos recently of things here in this city. Could you imagine situations in Austin, Texas, like what we see? I was fearful of that um, about um, a month ago and um, had been with Chief, Chief Acevedo as well as um, Sheriff Hamilton and a number of pastors because of the recent situations where one, a, a, a man is found to be innocent, but yet haven't been in prison, to have a number of um, shootings here in Austin, and one that was recent, and I did not know the impact that that was going to have. And part of that conversation with the folks that said, guys, what you don't understand is there's a level of pain and anger of watching child after child um, experience this and wondering is there safety for your child and then watching the folks whose salary you pay with your taxes not protect you or care for you but see you in a certain light and yet seeing another person die and then I was challenged because I had connections to both families and also a desire to keep things civil and also a desire to allow um, a community to know that it isn't gonna be swept under the carpet, but how we respond has got to be in a way in which we're not dealing with destruction. We're able to um, really come up with a plan. And we did come up with a plan, and praise be to God, when the decision was made, it did not result in uh, higher calamities. But as pastors, East and West, we began to have the conversations and to start talking about it um, in a way that everyone could understand. Even if you disagreed, you can understand where one might have some issues and why, the, why folks might be upset. Well, let's, let's talk about that. So when we, when we live here today and we see and read about this vision, as followers of Jesus, of what God's design for our cities, for the kingdom is. Um, uh, John talked last week about, you know, that what are steps that we can take that, are, that we know we could keep taking, rather than some sort of one-time blitz of something and then we don't do anything else. What are continuous actions that we could do and repeat and keep doing? What are some things that as we sit here at Covenant that we could individually or communally, do you think, number one, be a, to be aware 
And number two, to act outside of these systems that I think lots of times we don't even see. Oh, no. But what, what, what does that look like, do you think? I would say the first thing is never recognize when you're getting caught up in the shame and the guilt game. Um, the enemy uses guilt and shame to bind us up. And Jesus has already liberated us from that. So it's, that's the most important thing. Um, Tim Keller would say that if you find yourself recognizing, oh, I participated in a system that caused harm, then you're like, well, I didn't know, and now I know, and what do I do? Well, as Christians, we just confess. And in confessing, God says yes. And so now let's change that and how we're going to do with the outlook so that as you see it, now you can say something about it. The challenge is, is the hardest part for us is, is we like to go alone to get alone um, and not to rock the boat. And, and it's, I'm constantly trying to tell the spirit, not now. I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to do this. And that's not a luxury I get to have. Um, I love the fact a lot of people love Jeremiah 29, 11, but 29 and 7 says that seek the welfare of the city. In doing so, you will find your prosperity. And so when we're looking for ways in which we're elevating and blessing everyone that's a part of the city, then we are the better because of it. Um, I don't want to have to uh, lock my doors. I don't want to have to put a set of bars on my window because the folks outside are so desperate because they have nothing that they have to come in. So it is, you can keep pushing folks out for so long before they're gonna have an impact and say it, it doesn't matter um, because I'm that desperate. I, um, as our church says, we are blessed to be a blessing and it's ever being in a place where we say, God, we wanna be a conduit for your blessings to flow. Why? Because our fear is, is that God is not a God of abundance. God is a God of scarcity because we think the resources are gonna run out. Um, I would say part of the things that continue to do, when I was called here, um, the Oasis group allowed me to teach Eric Law, when the wolf and the lamb shall dwell together. And we sat and we had an eight week class in talking about that. Um, and what would it mean in dealing with the fact that an iceberg, two icebergs coming together, if we see it, we know to a, a, adjust, but what happens is we don't see the stuff underneath, the stuff we learned as we were growing up that impacted us. So it's always being aware of that, not letting shame get us, be aware of when stuff that we didn't know that we had in us starts bumping up around us, then to recognize that. As a result of, I believe, doing that, 
we, we began to have the conversations about how do we welcome folks in the community to the FEB building. We're about to, at that time, a $16 million uh, campaign, and yet are we going to be able to welcome the city to Covenant? And the answer is yes, but to do that, you have to begin the preparation of what that's gonna look like and how can we do that? So it's not just saying we are an inviting community, but are we a welcoming community? So that, yeah, man, I invited a whole lot of folks to come, but when they came, did they feel welcomed? And so I believe that was a part of the welcoming aspect of covenant coming alive so that you're in a position you are now where kids are coming here for basketball games, um, being a part of the FEB building, and it becomes a resource for the community. So that is a way. Last thing, I wear this lapel of Texas Longhorn. I don't know if any Longhorns in the house. <clears throat> but when I came here, Charlie Betts um, took me to one of the Longhorn luncheons. And I heard about it when I was playing ball. I've never been to one. And so he takes me to the luncheon, and I'm to do the invocation, pray for the blessing over the food. And what he did is he used his influence to invite me into a world that I hadn't been a part of. And as his pastor, introduced me to that world. And then after our prayer time, eating time, fellowship time, introduces me to Lou Williams, who was the president at that time. And he said, why don't you come back again? And then again. <laughs> and so it's those kind of things that make a difference. When someone says, well, you're a person of privilege. And you're like, oh, no. Or to say, you know what, I do have, I have, I have a little bit of power. I have a little bit of influence, and I'm going to use that to, um, to impact someone else's life. So I think if we take our gifts and utilize our gifts and not pull them back but share them richly um, the way God called us to do, then that will make a difference. And you talked about fear earlier. It's still being reminded. Second Timothy tells us, that God is not one in seven. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. I don't have to be afraid. Do I have fears? You better believe it. But then I have to keep speaking to myself. What are you doing? The Lord didn't give you the spirit of fear and of love and of power and of sound mind so that I'm walking in places that could cause me to be afraid but that I won't. Um, and so that's a part of it. Um, it's crazy. This presbytery calls me to be a moderator and we have 150 churches and no African-American churches. We have, um, I'm the only African-American ordained pastor who's here in this presbytery. The other is a, an ordained chaplain who's honorably retired and another one's an African 
uh, pastor who is retired and my mother who's a CRE. And so if I were to allow fear of racism to keep me from doing anything, then I would be locked. And so our call is, even when you're uncomfortable, is to recognize that we are instruments of God's glory and we shed light where there's darkness. And, um, and it makes a difference. I've got a couple of folks that I call when I'm in challenges and I need to get my head straight. And um, that's the other thing is, can we be in conversation and dialogue, hear each other's pain, not take that on, but hear it, pray about it and say, okay, how can we um, make changes differently having this new information? So we, we have a, a, a way that we've talked around here that some of us have pushed more than others about what it means to be an Acts 2 church. And it's interesting as you talk about that, that the things I hear are, when you look at these four rhythms that we've talked about, there was the apostles' teachings. There's the curriculum that you mentioned. There's the things that we're choosing to read about and study in our Sunday school classes or in our small groups. There's, and those are choices we make. Sometimes we don't yeah. see the choices that are in front of us. Come on. What, well, what book are we choosing to read? What things are we choosing to talk about? That they devoted themselves to community, yes. to intimate fellowship. And that that's where, um, if we're honest, most of us choose relationships with people who are like us, who, who make us feel more comfortable. And we've talked about that here at Covenant, that the diversity of theology, the diversity of thought here is actually a strength. It's a great strength for us but how we continue to seek out intentionally relationships across lines that differentiate and then share those relationships. I mean, it, it's, I don't mean this in a negative way, but leverage them, as you shared about Charlie Betts, who, by the way, has never invited me to one of those lunches, but that's okay. Uh, uh, but I, that's I, because they're no longer in existence. There was an AD that may move those away. Well, so yeah, before yeah, you came on, let's let, we don't we don't need we're, we we're we're tackling enough issues here tonight without getting <laughs> yeah, into uh, man. the to, to the really controversial stuff. Of, but what you said is important. Um, I, there was a time that um, folks would say every word that came out of my mouth was it was a scripture and it was a scripture and it was a scripture. And um, I had uh, Skip Crow come to me and said, now how can you talk in the marketplace in a way that you're talking your faith without it always being about what the scriptures say so that someone doesn't feel like they're being thumped over the head by the Bible out of your mouth. And so there was a way in which I, I started to learn how to navigate the business, the marketplace, differently because of a member here mm -hmm. who was in the marketplace. Right. Um, I call him the Sanhedrin, um, Scott Moore. In the most loving of ways, Skip. That's, you know, no, that's Scott Moore over there, that oh, rascally okay. fella. That's the Sanhedrin. Um, because there are times when you need to know what it is that you're about to walk into and say, now how might someone else interpret this different, differently than I do? Sure. And how do I take what I feel and, and do something productive? Um, because there are times I wanna be like the brother 
of Thunder James in the Bible and called fire down and not um, love and mercy and grace. <laughs> and he has to help me uh, with that. But that's the kind of thing in which you mentor, you help guide, you say, I've seen this before. I'm aware of these places. The landmines are over here. I don't want you to go through it because I care about you. Right. Not because you're my African-American friend, right. but because I care about you because you're part of my community. Yeah. I wouldn't want you going through this. And so boom, boom, boom. And having relationships where I, I think one of the things that we often naturally assume is that our idea of what is normal and real is universal. And I think that's some of what's important of this as well, is that for people um, of different ethnicities, for people that grow up in different neighborhoods or different zip codes or send their kids to different schools, their normal is not our normal. And I think lots of times we see events that are taking place in a place like Ferguson, it's like, well, how can that happen? Rather than being open to, I wonder what's happening that makes this Yes. The option, sort of like we've talked about with the refugee crisis. What's going on where the best option is to get on a boat that could pass no safety regulation with your children, and that's the safest and best of choices? I can't understand that as I'm sitting in Austin, Texas, watching it, but that's not a normative projection that you can make. And I think sometimes we have to, to ask that question. One other thing, and then we're going to open this up to a, a, a few questions uh, for people to be able to ask. But... Uh, we talked last week about what it means to be a reconciling community. Reconciliation, which we're working with. And I think we've been getting at that. Uh, another word is liberation. Um, how do you think about those words? What does it mean to be a reconciling? What does it mean to be a, lib uh, a congregation working for liberation of people? What, what, what's your perspective on that for us to be that kind of church? I think we, we began that process when... The session wrote a letter to folks who might have had um, pain as a result of things that happened here over the years. And the session wrote and said, we're going to have a service of healing and wholeness, of reconciliation. And so several years ago, we had that service. And that was powerful. Whether everyone came or not, the fact that we did it, the hardest thing in the world to do, even when we know it, is to admit, I'm not perfect. Mm. <laughs> We're not. And, and so when we recognize that and then we say, but I'm not going to be happy in this state. I don't have to harden my heart because I'm going to open it up and so forth to have that service. It was something else. Um, part for me, the liberation piece came in having an opportunity to give a print of uh, the signs. It's a Presbyterian beautiful print, which said, the session said, this is a situation, and here we are. Will you forgive? And for me, it was to say, yes, and here is a gift of, of appreciation and a way of saying it's done. Um, and to go down, every time I walk down the hallway that has our pastor's pictures, 
and I look on the other side, Presbyterian women there, I see the symbols of the dance. That is a sign in which it says we had a challenging situation. We faced it so that there can be an opportunity for liberation, freedom. There's nothing like being set free and walking in that freedom. Jesus calls Lazarus to come forth and he doesn't come out walking. He comes out in his grave clothes. And Jesus says, unbind him, let him go. And I think that is the piece of us unbinding each other from a past that we, we feel ashamed of, that we had no control of, but still feel like it's over, hanging over our head or chasing us or like, ugh, I don't wanna face this thing. But walking with the liberty that we have in Jesus and recognizing that he's called us to be ambassadors and called us to be agents of reconciliation. And that makes a difference. You're free, the other person's free. And even when you see the stuff, it's like, yeah, I see it, but it's not mine. But because you're in it, I can walk with you like the Holy Spirit. And let's see how we can resolve this or fix this. Freedom. But in freedom. So, um, for the, the last few minutes that we have together, uh, and first off, I hope we recognize this. These are not, it's not easy for James, uh, and I have, we haven't talked about this, but it's not easy for James or anyone I would imagine to get called into a church, even one where you have relationships, and say, would you have this conversation with us? Uh, and would you share openly? And so, I first off just want to thank you, oh, thank you. For, uh, for being here and being with us tonight. Um, we want to open this up for a few minutes. Just if you all have questions, things that you'd like to ask, things, points that you'd like to make, um, uh, to just have a, a few minutes for, for you guys to interact with James. So if you, uh, I'm going to actually switch modes now to kind of the Vanna White role that I have here, which is in my job description, by the way. And so, Joe, if you want to start us off. What about Joe? Thank you, Thomas. James, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> One of the troubling things that I see uh, in the black community that I really struggle with how I can be involved in that. Um, three out of four black children are born into single parent families in major American cities in the U.S. Black population makes up 10 to 12 percent of the American population. It accounts for 40 percent of the abortions that are uh, that happened in the United States. The news stories of black on black crime, homicide, are just so troubling to watch. And here I am sitting here, white guy, doing well in life, but really have a really hard time understanding how I can make an impact to those situations that I really think are deteriorating the black family and the black possibilities of success. So, <clears throat> I have different ways to approach that. Um, part of it is, is go. Um, go where, go into that community. Um, go where you feel most comfortable and start having the conversation. A lot of times people believe that folks are there in that situation because they don't have 
character. They don't have um, discipline. They don't have work ethics. They do. Um, there are some who don't, but there are many who do. But there are systems in place. Um, you can get food stamps as long as the man is not in the house. You can get housing as long as the man is not in the house. So the day the father moves in with the family because the mother was able to get housing, they lose their housing. So for them to get married means they lose the opportunity to have a roof over their head. Um, in order for her to keep getting the food stamps, she's now got to identify who the father of the child is. One of the things that folks don't talk about, I worked at the Attorney General's Office in Child Support, is that although we take on that debt or carry it for a while, it's being put on his account. So we talk about the welfare moms, but the welfare moms are there, but his debt is increasing by every cent that she gets over here. So he can't come into this house or she loses the benefit, but he has to pay the debt. So the house is separated as they're moving along this process. He's more and more being looked down upon because he's not present, and yet he carries the burden of not being with family and having the debt increase, and not in some cases having a job where he can care for himself, pay that debt, and address the house. So there are different ways in which, so you could say, how can we look at the system and address the system? Or can I be in this home, show this, uh, go to this school, care for this child, make sure this child continues to um, learn and grow in his, his or her school so that she or he can break the cycle and get out of because they have seen a different example. So that is a way that can make a difference um, in recognizing that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, let me... No. I had to, I, 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 y'all don't know um, the pain I had in having a father say, I want to be with my kids and I can't. Yeah. And knowing that he was the better caregiver because of how he was growing up, but that for the sake of the family, I couldn't tell him where they were. And I'm watching the kids act out because he is no longer present. So that is a part of the heartache of the role of the pastor on the east side in the midst of all of this. Go ahead. So if 12% of the population is African-American, 60% of incarcerated individuals are African-American. However, it's not proportionate to the, the percentage of crimes that African-Americans commit. So. A white guy commits a crime, an African-American guy commits a crime, 
there's a very different rate of arrest, prosecution, and incarceration when that happens. So if 60% of our population is African-American that's incarcerated, what, there's another statistic that says if a young man does not, an African-American young man does not graduate from high school, he is at 70% chance that he will be incarcerated. So when I hear, what could we do, I wonder, hey, James, do you know any ways that we could help young African-American men graduate from high school? I'm glad you asked. No. <laughs> no, um, a part of that is, and again, you are right um, when you talk about um, the number of folk individuals who are incarcerated and that rate. Um, a part of it is um, I had a chance to, um, a year ago, go to an event with Breakthrough Austin. Just left one um, about a week or two ago where uh, Maya Smart was there to give the presentation about ways in which they're raising the funds to go with young people from fifth grade, walking alongside of them, providing counsel, providing mentorship with them through fifth grade, through high school, and then helping them to get into college and working with them through college so that they can be the first graduate in their families, um, which begins to um, break a cycle. They did an example, had an example of a young man, Hispanic brother, who because he was in it, his brother decided to be a part of it. And this group of individuals supported this family through the floods twice. They lost everything the first time, and they just recently lost everything. And instead of making that a setback to quit, they had the reinforcement of a community to go alongside of them, and they could move forward and use that as an opportunity to say, not only can I, but we can, um, because he wasn't alone. So that is a way. The other part is I'm working on the board of Austin Clubhouse which helps deal with mental illness. A lot of uh, individuals, if you don't have insurance, um, you can't deal with your uh, mental illness, and so they self-medicate. A lot of times they self-medicate with alcohol, other times self-medicating with uh, drugs, and so you're now criminalized for your mental illness. And so some of the folks going to jail are going to jail for, uh, for reefer. Um, and some are going to jail for heavier stuff, but um, there are some mental illnesses that are impacting um, that. Um, does that mean everyone who's gone to jail of the 60% is innocent? The answer is no. But are there some cases where there were folks who had some mental illnesses, who had some other situation? The answer is yes. Let me, let me say one, one quick word, and then Daphne uh, can have a question. We, we, this coming Saturday, just so that we remove the mystery of how we can get involved, because I think it's a good question, good. both individually and corporately. Ooh, Jill. We have our Shape to Serve Saturday coming up this coming Saturday. Opportunities to, as we talk about extravagant generosity, to get out in the city and to get involved. Two of the places that we need people to sign up are with Manos de Cristo, 
but also with the work that Alan and Julie Weeks are doing in the St. John's neighborhood mm. in East Austin. If you are interested in getting involved with mentoring, if you're involved with interested in getting involved with tutoring, getting involved in uh, in some of these schools, it's not it's you don't have to go Google the place to find that. Although you're welcome to, there are opportunities both short term and long term that you can get involved now in relationships and in these kinds of ministries. And as James is saying, lots of times it's just about making the decision to go get involved. But those are partnerships that you know we're active in, that um, they're looking for people to come get involved. And, in and a prime example, a little thing, is like when we were when we, we're almost ready, definitely. When we were at Dessau, um, the um, I, I went by and talked to the principal and his assistant principal and just said, "Hey, we're at the church. We're right next door, and uh, just want to introduce myself." And so once a month we would give donuts to the teachers. Well then, on a semester or sometimes quarterly basis, um, the Presbyterian women, or the circles from Covenant, would make bags. And so with the little bags, they helped bless the teachers. They had our information in it, and we gave it to the teachers. So that was an example of which Covenant help New Covenant to bless teachers who were overwhelmed with the stuff that they were dealing with, and it became a resource. Well, when they had children who had to do community service, but had parents who couldn't afford to take off their job to help them do community service, guess where they did their community service? <laughs> they did it at New Covenant. There were folks in our session that said, are you out of your mind, Pastor? And I said, yes, and yes. And so part of the ways in which they did community service is they were our ushers. I said, why would you put them as your usher? So that when someone came in, they looked them in the eye. They smiled. They stuck their hand out, good morning. And then welcome to New Covenant. Here's a bulletin. Can I show you to your seat? They were learning how to communicate social skills in a church. Is there a division of church and state? Yes, there is. But there are times in where discipleship can be teaching a skill set. And so we were able to do that, all working together because resources, circles, us, invitation, relationship, and now we could move forward. Better get Daphne because I'll keep going. All right, we 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 got uh we got about sixty seconds left. So, well, I'm glad y'all talked about that because it falls directly into my question. Yes, ma'am. You know, Beth is a social worker. I am too. So we work in minority populations. But something very interesting when we're talking about this, and here we are talking about all, a bunch of white people going out to go uh, help the community. A little girl said to another. Uh, African-American social worker, if I see one more white lady as my caseworker, I'm going to scream. Is that really how the black community, how many people feel like that? And how is that for white people to go in and help? Does it make that, I mean, tell me what they're really thinking. I mean, I can, I get what I she's saying, right but now, I'm like, girl, I would have said I'm the only one here. Sorry. I'm and, sorry. And I'm white. You better believe it. Um, that's not, I think more of the frustration is not against uh, folks in the American community. It's why aren't 
uh, why aren't there more African Americans who are present? Uh, part, of the, part of the education challenge is why should I pursue an education if my mom and dad got one and they don't have a job worth of, you know, enough to pay for us to, to have different this one? Um, what's the use of doing this if you can't take off your job to go be present with, um, you know, with me when I have a special event at school? So that influences what happened and how the children perceive their parents, how they uh, perceive others. Um, you know, part of it is, has been when we developed a relationship with uh, one of our um, businesses, uh, business persons in the marketplace is for that person to say, if you're going over there to mentor, you don't have to take, um, you don't have to use your leave time to go do that because you're representing our company, helping our community and a child. You go, come back, don't take advantage of it and watch the change take place. That was a, a marketplace minister, a person who had influence freeing staff to go do or a parent to go do what he or she needed to do. And so that's a perfect example. And that's a, it's an example of what you talked about earlier of, of leveraging the positions we're in, of leveraging the relationships we have to pursue these kingdom values that are so clear in scripture. So thank you. Can I do one other quick? Man, yeah. If you can have long sermons, you know. Uh, <laughs> Tom Brown is the only person that thinks that. Nobody else. Hey, they give me a hard time over there at New Covenant as well. Um, one of the things when you were talking about Alan and Julie Weeks back in the day is when they began that ministry in St. John, there were more of immigrants who were working who were being beaten and robbed because folks knew that if they were illegal, they couldn't report. And because of what they did with the community, um, that, that it's had some new changes in names, but because of what they did, they provided a safe place in the community for the kids to go to have a place of learning outside of school before parents came in and leverage that so that the police would go in and just hear the report and not move so deeply into immigration so that folks could start reporting, crimes can be reduced and they could go forward. It is when folks like what Judy, Julie and Alan were doing, buying homes in the area so that the safe places are there on the corner that makes a difference. And then it's doing like the Stone did along with them, and that is to adopt um, Webb Elementary and Reagan so that anything that happened in that school, principals went to the pastors, they were able to identify folks who could resource it and help um, make a difference. There are times you'll walk in a setting and you'll see things. You say, well, why is it that way? And I know how to fix that kind of a problem. And our creative juices get places. We see things. We can solve problems that folks get stuck in because it's, what it's their norm. It's not ours. We see it, and we can see the solution. and said, that's easy fix. 
And so that's an easy way to, to, um, to make a difference if we go into that environment. These are not easy conversations, and they're not things that you solve in an hour. But I want to thank you for being with us tonight and being willing to have this conversation with us. So here's the, here's the thing, and I'm going to get James to pray for us as we go. There are opportunities, and James will be preaching here on Sunday in all four of our services. Yes, I did tell you that. There, four. That's right. <laughs> Guess how many there are in New Covenant that I have to preach in? One. So this is going to be a nice Sunday for Thomas. Um, James will be preaching in all of our services this Sunday. And... Um, and also there are opportunities we talked about with through Shape to Serve this weekend and also longer term opportunities of where you can get involved in some of the things we're talking about here. And, and what we're called to do on issues like this is that we are called to be faithful. None of us is going to go out and solve the issue of racism in the city of Austin or in this country alone by ourselves in the next 24 hours. It's too complex to go have a silver bullet where there's just an answer and it's done. But we can be faithful to the call God has on us. And if the people in this room, starting with, said, I'm going to seek to be faithful in some kind of way to this vision from Revelation of what God says our city is supposed to look like, imagine the change that can happen. Your call is to be faithful, and that's mine too. And so thanks for helping us think about what faithfulness looks like. Would you pray for us as sure. we go? Great and awesome, God. We just give you thanks and praise for this wonderful uh, family of believers. And even as we're dealing with complex matter, God, you're the one who is God. And you called us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. You opened our worlds in ways that we never understood. This is such a complex area. We need you to walk with us. We need you to open our eyes. And then when you do, help us not to be overwhelmed. Help us to walk it by faith, step by step by step. And when we've been of offended, as Daphne said, when someone said, I don't want to see you, Lord, help us to lay that to the side and to keep walking in what you've called us to do. Thank you for every person here, every struggle, every victory, everything that you've allowed us to overcome because we are more than conquerors through Christ our Lord. Please help us when we get caught up in guilt and shame and remind us of the victory that we have in Jesus. Now, Lord, as we leave this place and never from your presence, pray that you would guard our hearts and our mind through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you all for being with us tonight.